Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. I'm joined today in the studio with my great colleague, Ramsha Azmat. Ramsha is a graduate of Rush University, and uh, where she did her perfusion training. She is also now a certified clinical perfusionist, having aced her boards on the very first try. And uh, I think you've maybe even reset now the bar that people have to achieve. Um, But uh, she is a new graduate with us, and she is independent, and she's just doing an outstanding job. And she's going to be talking along with me today on DO2. And uh, then in a little while, we're going to be joined also because we're going to be doing PerfWeb 74. So 68 is now. This is the one that I previously canceled. And then we're going to be doing PerfWeb 74, which is our last one for 2021. And we're going to be joined by Bill Watson. And I'll introduce him when he gets here and we'll talk a little bit about him. But while I'm just sort of discussing it before we get started with these lectures, Tell us about your new experience, your feeling about having passed the boards and having that big certificate that says American Board of Cardiovascular Perfusionists, you know, that that you are now a certified clinical perfusionist and can use that initial those initials after your name. How does that feel? And it was a big dream come true. I mm. remember starting three years ago, no, four years, I think or three years ago when I figured out about perfusion. I interviewed with someone in Dallas, and then I went crazy after that. This is what I wanted to do after that. My parents wanted me to go towards like becoming a doctor, and I wanted to do something in um, cardiology. Mm-hmm. But when I figured this out, I was like, I just went after it, and it became my dream. That's all I wanted to do. And, and you today- have a very strong, you do, you have an incredible passion yeah. Um, for this uh, industry, and that's why I feel so humbled and proud that you work with us. Thank you. Uh, but I remember that in the very early days of your quest, you were uh, calling me um, seemingly incessantly because you wanted to shadow, mm-hmm. and I remember setting that up for you, getting you mm-hmm. to where you got to do that, and you shadowed a couple of times. Yeah. And uh, then the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from you that, hey, I'm going to be graduating from perfusion school. Um, are you hiring? Yeah. And uh, I can tell you, we we happened to, at the time, mm-hmm. have a position available. Uh, but I, I'm feel, I feel confident in saying, getting to know you the way I have, and sort of how I noticed mm-hmm. your tenacity at the time, um, you know, your determination was very remarkable. Even if we had not had a position available, I was going to hire you anyway. Aww, so I don't want to tell you that, though, because now you'll be asking for a raise. I don't want you to do that. So, uh, no. But anyway, you're doing a fantastic job. You but really honestly, are. And I'm, per- I'm so incredibly proud of you. Perfusion was never for money. It was more for my passion. I Absolutely. wanted to do this for more of my passion because I was just like, once I saw the cases, I felt like that's where... I was meant to be mm-hmm. in that OR. Mm-hmm. I felt so safe. I was like, this is where I need to be. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I have not seen, um, and I, I don't want to, you know, I'm sorry that I'm just sort of disgusted talking, but I think it's it's important for especially younger perfusionists that may be out there listening to us right now, um, that in all of the time that I've been in this industry, 
you're uh, one of the very few people that I have seen come directly out of school and in a very short period of time be to the level you currently are where surgeons are that we work with that are quite difficult and demanding and fast they're great surgeons yeah. but they're 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 demanding Very. um but you have uh, already developed quite a reputation amongst our surgeons uh that everyone is very comfortable with you being in their room and and working with them so you know that takes uh that takes a particular kind of person and for your you know diminutive size and relative quiet voice um you are uh, you are very well respected in that operating room and uh very comfortable uh, the surgeons are very comfortable when you're doing their cases so my compliments to you for that thank you so much you're more than welcome so do you want me to go first or do you want to go first and it doesn't oh. much matter to me i'll let you go first and then mine will somewhat tie to yours okay but it's a little bit off kind of a little bit different different so it dovetails into yours okay yes. so good so we'll go ahead and do uh is there anything i forgot david no. no okay good so i've covered everything so now we're going to jump right into uh do2 so we'll go with our slides so you can see them okay you're yes. good okay and uh, just a quick question, if I can, David, I'm sorry, Mermagic. Is that monitor just supposed to be like that or is it supposed to be something else? I'm just not, I wanna make sure that the stream is going right. That one over there. I just wanna make sure that we're, yeah, we look good. So that other monitor being that, it's, that's okay? Okay. Okay, so just, just ignore that one. All right, so I want to give some acknowledgments to a Dr. Uh, Lundy Campbell and John Crite and John Ingram, uh, perfusionist, for uh, their contributions to this particular uh, uh, talk that I'm going to give. I got really so much of my information from them. Um, a lot of the stuff that Dr. Campbell and Dr. Crite have, uh, have published and also uh, John with his programs that he does, Knowledge Nuggets and participating in PerfWeb, he's really taught me a lot uh, about things and gotten me interested in things that I might not have really known a lot of, you know, as much about as I probably should, right? It's the one thing I'm, I, have with, I have absolute certainty of, and that is that your, your certification, my certification, renewal certification, whatever, is really a license for us to learn yeah because this 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 you have to continue to try and learn or you can just get so far behind in this industry and you know you don't know what's going on because things change so incredibly fast yeah. um, early observations with so this is uh, from an article and I wanted to point this out that it's chest in, uh, in December of 1988 and what I wanted to bring this up for is We've been talking about DO2 for a very long time. Oxygen to the tissue is not some new revelation that we are now, you know, talking about or wrestling with or deciding, you know, what's best. We've actually been looking at it for a very long time. And Schumacher uh, and others, you know, Dr. Rivers, Manny Rivers up in Detroit, I don't know where he is now, but he was in Detroit for the longest time. Um, but, but Schumacher first, but they've done incredible work at looking at DO2 and survival, but more in the emergency room and the critical care unit. But I think so much of that can be 
uh, correlated to what we do in the operating room. Because in my view, cardiopulmonary bypass really is a controlled shock state, in my view. And there's a lot of things going on. We're there to perfuse the patient, but we're also there to facilitate the operation being done. And if you're overflowing the patient, not getting good venous drainage, and they can't see to do the operation because the field is flooded, well, we have to make decisions. And then sometimes those decisions are lower flow. And how long can we tolerate it for? What's going to be the impact of it? How can I adjust the DO2 so that I can tolerate a lower flow? Do I need to do something with temperature? So we're going to go through all of these various different things. But he was looking at shock survivors. And he noticed that survivors of septic shock achieved higher values in cardiac index, oxygen delivery, oxygen consumption, and that they had much lower oxygen extraction levels. The underlying assumption that maximizing DO2 would increase, DO2 being delivery of oxygen, would increase VO2 or utilization of oxygen and reduce tissue hypoxemia. So the question from uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Campbell and Dr. Kreit is, does Schumacher make sense? So it seems intuitive that improving tissue oxygenation would be beneficial. What level of DO2 should be targeted? And that timing of intervention is important. Now yeah. we've talked about that, I can't tell you how many times on this program and many others, that with ECMO, historically, earlier intervention was believed to be much better in terms of survival. However, and with that said, ECMO on its own merit is not good for us. Yeah. So if I take a healthy patient and put them on ECMO, there's going to be a host of things occur, including very significant inflammatory yeah. response um, and high risk of other complications, mm -hmm. stroke, thrombosis, pulmonary embolus, uh, uh, inflammatory, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, bleeding, uh, you name it, renal failure. There's all kinds of hepatic congestion. There's all kinds of things that could happen. ECMO is not good for us. Yeah but it is a tool to be used in certain circumstances. And historically, we've, we've thought that earlier intervention is going to improve outcomes, but, with not, but, but keeping in mind that it has inherent risks means that if you put a patient on ECMO too soon, you could actually hurt that patient. That patient may not have ever needed ECMO, yeah. may survive the, the respiratory insult, but now they aren't going to make it because we did put the patient on ECMO and a, uh, a, uh, 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 a uh, uh, complication ensued from that. So I think we need to be aware of that. So patient selection is, it says may be important, but I think that it is very. Ultimately, very, very important. It's not maybe important. Patient selection is critical in these in any kind of of significant uh, uh, medical intervention, high, really high tech medical intervention. 
Does affecting oxygen delivery matter? Well, there's many varied and conflicting studies. They cover a wide variety of ICU patients, and they're all instituted at, very, at various times. And it makes the ability to really look at this data objectively and make sense of it very onerous, quite difficult, and in the words of the authors of this, a methodological quagmire. And we all understand what that means. It was very well put, actually, by them. In Schumacher's uh, original article, uh, I'll just read the abstract. I think it's worth reading. Survivors of high-risk surgical operations were previously observed to have significant higher mean cardiac index, DO2, and VO2 than the non-survivors. The hypothesis was proposed that increasing the, C, the cardiac index and DO2 are circulatory com compensations for increased postoperative metabolism, and that makes sense. We tested this hypothesis in two series. Series one, prospectively allocated by services, mortality, morbidity of the control group were significantly greater than those of the protocol group. In series two, patients who fulfilled previously defined high-risk criteria were preoperatively randomized to one of three monitoring treatment groups, CVP control, PA control, and PA protocol group. And this was to manage fluid, okay? Actually, this was and fluid and continuous cardiac output monitoring at the time. Postoperative mortalities in the CVP control and PA control group were not statistically significant, uh, different, but the PA protocol group mortality was significantly reduced compared with its control groups. The PA protocol group had reduced complications, duration of hospitalization, duration of ICU stay, and mechanical ventilation. This was written in 1988. Was far superior than just looking at blood pressure and filling pressure, the RA pressure, but actually being able to do, in those days it was probably cold hemodilution, but you could shoot cardiac outputs, you could do a wedge, you could see what the left side was doing. There was a lot of information you could get from a PA catheter that you cannot get from just a CVP. Essentially, the Schumacher was two very difficult studies in one, and this is, of course, coming from the author. Significant methodological issues, critical ill, non-cardiac high-risk surgical patients, the two groups, the protocol, control and protocol, each with its own hemodynamic goals. The controls, which you see here, was cardiac index, DO2, and VO2. In the protocol, the index was much higher, from 2.8 to 3.5 to greater than 4.5, oh, computer shut down, um, and the DO2 from 400 to 550 to greater than 600, and the VO2 uh, 120 to 140 or greater than 120 in the protocol group. All groups received fluids, inotropes, vasopressors, vasodilators as needed. Let me go ahead and restart my computer if I may. I'm so sorry. It's crowded up here, guys. Yeah, too much. And the glasses, I can't see. I'm trying to get all this done. I put my glasses on my head so I don't lose them. So, next uh, talk. So, Schumacher took 252 uh, patients and randomized them control and protocol. And when started study per and uh, and when started the study period pre-op versus post-op. 
analyzed patient mortality by subgroup, early versus late, control versus protocol, cardiac index normal at baseline versus elevated at baseline. In all groups combined, the control group had a mortality of 34%. In the protocol group, it was 19%. But in the patients that started off with normal pre-op hemodynamics, the control was 28% mortality, so far less than just in all groups. And the protocol, and for the protocol, it was 10% much lower. So if the patient has normal preoperative or pre-therapeutic, whatever we say operative, but it's not necessarily surgery all the time, could be just an ICU admission. We're just calling the interventions operative. You if you have normal pre-op hemodynamics, you're much more likely to survive than somebody who has deranged uh, hemodynamics in the beginning of whatever the intervention is going to be. Um, in the second series, 146 patients met criteria for the study. 58 were not randomized, 45 were not sick enough. It's, they split the remaining 88 patients into three groups. CVC, where it's central venous uh, uh, pressure, PAC, uh, which would be the uh, 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 pulmonary artery pressure, and the PAC uh, protocol group, which is the PAC with supra-physiologic targets. So in the CVC and the PAC group, they went with normal hemodynamics. In the PAC protocol group, they did supranormal targets. So higher cardiac output, higher DO2, higher hematocrits, et cetera. The, and then they analyzed, and when you analyzed all of this for mortality, the central venous pressure group had a 23% mortality. The PA control group had a 33% mortality, but the PA protocol group had a 4% mortality. The ones that were non-randomized had a 38% uh, mortality risk. So you see, by looking at the PA with the protocol and using it to drive volume administration and also inotropy support, et cetera, to try and improve cardiac output and index, you by doing this, they show, and this is back again in 1988, but they show a very significant difference in mortality risk from 23 and 33% to 4%. That's a very meaningful set of information. So I think it really shows us historically how long we've been wrestling with this and how important it has been recognized for so long that oxygen delivery to the tissue is critical to our survival. So background, so I'm going to go through some stuff. The background on oxygen delivery, which we already did. Me, why measure oxygen delivery? Does affecting oxygen delivery matter? How to make sense of this and some recommendations. So a little background on oxygen delivery. Go over the terms, formulas, how to measure it, how to measure oxygen consumption, and how to measure cardiac output, cardiac, cardiac index. So in terms... Oxygen delivery, DO2, is the amount of oxygen delivered to the body tissue in one minute. DO2 equals cardiac output times O2 content. It's very simple, not very complicated formula at all. 
oxygen consumption, the, con the utilization of, uh, of oxygen, is the rate of oxygen removed from blood for use by tissues. VO2 is measured by calorimetry, and the formula is cardiac output times the uh, arterial oxygen content minus the venous oxygen content, and that is a thick equation. Oxygen extraction, or EO2, is the slope of the DO2 divided by VO2 relationship. It's often expressed as O2 extraction rate. We, we use that, and that's actually in our app. You can actually look this up. It's, very, it's a great, like I said, it's a terrific app. You are using the app, right? Very good. You're doing good. You're, <laughs> you can stay with the company another, another month. Okay. Um, often expressed as O2 extraction rate, and that formula is CaO2 minus CvO2 divided by CaO2, and it's normally 25 to 30%. So then that makes sense, right? What's your normal SVO2? Your normal SVO2 is 70 to 75. That's 25 to 30%. So your extraction rate is about 0.25 to 0.3. That's normal. And when we flow, when we're perfusing, and we're measuring continuous uh, venous saturations, we're looking for that. When it gets under 70, down 68, 66, 65, I don't know about you, but I start getting a little bit nervous at that point in time. And so that's sort of um, uh, telling me, hey, I'm not really flowing enough on this patient. On its own, it's probably really not enough. Uh, because in a, in, a, in, in a vacuum, any one of these things doesn't necessarily mean a whole hell of a lot. You always have to take everything into totality. And what can we tolerate as a, as a, as a human? You know, what, yeah. what can the patient tolerate? What can we do to improve it? Um, all these things. Oxygen delivery not measured directly. Um, DO2 equals CO times CaO2. We talked about that. Here's the formulas, basically. That's just the form. Normal values, 1,000 mLs per minute or 500 milliliters per meter, meter squared. So there's your, your oxygen delivery formula. Here is your formula for oxygen consumption, and it's about 3 mLs per kg or about 250 mLs per minute, which would be 25% of the 1,000, which we just talked about. And this is now a very important slide. So I want to take some time to talk about this one. I've kind of blown through that previous part, but everybody should really already understand that. That was a very uh, uh, rudimentary review. So what you're looking at here is, and if you look in this area here, this area here is a supply-independent oxygenation region. And what that means is that anything from this point forward is going to be luxurious. And what I mean by that is if you are just at rest, this is going to be fine. But once you start moving around and exercising or something else is going on, you're going to start uh, using more and more and more. And if you have oxygenation out here, you have this reserve to play around with. So that's why I call everything over here luxurious. It's more than you need. But if you follow this line here coming across from A to B to C, you notice that it starts to drop off. This is a supply-dependent oxygenation. And what this is going to do is, if you notice your O2 extraction, 
is down here around 20%, then it's here at 30%, your extraction goes higher, 40 and 50 and 60%, and as this continues to fall, your extraction rate goes up and your lactate starts to increase because you are no longer supplying sufficient oxygen to the tissue for aerobic metabolism. Now you're getting into the anaerobic metabolism phase. And so if you're, and I'll talk a little bit about exercise, but this is basically what happens to an athlete. As you look at this line with an athlete, athletes can get this line all the way out to here before it starts falling and it doesn't fall quite as fast. Eventually it will and their muscles will fail. But in just normal everyday people like you and I, once you get to a certain point where you are no longer supplying enough oxygen, and here's your DO2 down here, 500, 1,000 being normal, and you get low enough, your, oxygen, your extraction rate goes up higher and higher until you're basically no longer able to extract enough oxygen from the tissue, and you, be, you develop a lactic acidosis, and uh, things go downhill from there. Here is another way to look at the same thing. The red line that you see down here is lactate. The blue line that you see here is extraction rate. And if you watch the extraction rate, down here you have oxygen delivery. You see that right here in milliliters. Uh, and you have oxygen consumption here. So as you can see, as your oxygen delivery goes down, going from right to left, and reaches a critical DO2 point, it falls off the cliff, and intersecting with that, as you can see, is your lactate levels beginning to rise. So it makes sense if you have an elevated lactate and you believe you have reduced cardiac output or oxygen delivery, more importantly, because you could have a great cardiac output and not have enough oxygen carrying capacity, which is a different issue, which we'll mm -hmm. talk about. But you can see it stands to reason if you have an elevated lactate by improving oxygen delivery, you can help clear that lactate and reestablish a normal physiology. Uh, as far as the exercise is concerned, VO2 max is very important. And what is VO2 max? Obviously, it's the maximum amount of oxygen that your body can utilize during exercise. And there's all kinds of ways to resolve that. Now, I'm not going to say who this biker is, but hey, I'm not accusing anyone. This is the, 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 the person who's the, uh, who's the uh, uh, viewer. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm just saying he never even slows down, the, uh, slows down on the hills, and it raises red flags. And you can see a bag of blood that's being administered to the cyclist. And so for those of you who don't know, this is what Lance Armstrong did. He took his own blood, he stored it, and then he gave it to himself so that he had a higher hemoglobin while he was racing in the uh, Pyrenees Mountains. And that gave him a much higher VO2 max because he had higher oxygen carrying capacity. So hemoglobin is so important when we're talking about doing bypass surgery or valve surgery or majoring aortic surgery, whatever it is, doesn't make any difference what you're doing. Yeah. You can't just look at your flow. You have to consider what is the oxygen content of my blood 
and that I'm flowing. And then you also have to take into consideration what are the patient's metabolic requirements at this moment? Am I cooling? Am I cold? Am I warming? Is the patient light on anesthesia? Um, are, you know, were they shivering or anything like that? There's so many questions you have to ask yourself before you can just assume I'm flowing enough or I'm not flowing enough. Because again, in a vacuum, that just doesn't tell you enough. So a lot of people, and I've seen it before, they won't flow under an index of 2.2. Well, sometimes you can't get the operation done, and we are there to facilitate the operation. The second part of being a perfusionist, because really my question is, why do you need a perfusionist? Well, you need a perfusionist to be able to make these decisions mm -hmm. that are going to make a big difference as to the patient's outcomes so that the surgeon can do the operation and have a good operation that's going to be successful at the same time, keeping the patient alive, keeping them neurologically intact, keeping their end organs able to work. So there's a lot going on when, you do, when you're a perfusionist versus just hanging out and just being there while they operate. There's yeah. a lot of decisions that have to be made, and it happens so fast. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even discussing the critical care unit because that's a totally different thing. But it's important, too. So how do we control DO2 and VO2? Well, you can increase oxygen content, increase the hemoglobin, increase the FiO2. If they're hypoxic, if, they're PO, if their saturation's only 90, you can make their saturation 100. That's going to be very important. And there's a formula. I think there's a formula coming up. But of course, saturation's what's important in terms of your oxygen content. There's very little oxygen dissolved in the plasma. It contributes to yeah. some degree, but very little. Um, you can increase the cardiac index. You can decrease regional oxygen consumption. If they're febrile, you can control the fever. You can cool the patient, whatever it may be. Control the work of breathing. If it is an ICU patient and they are not adequately sedated, they're shivering and moving, or they're they're, they're, they're breathing heavy. I mean, you know, when you become tachypnic in the ICU and you're not intubated and your work of breathing is so high, you basically just exhaust and you go into respiratory arrest. So that's when somebody's going to be intubated. Um, you want to intubate them before that happens, yeah. but you're leading that direction um, or treat the reason for the tachypnea. If it's some other reason, it could be cardiac, it could be congestive heart failure, fluid overload, a lot of different things. Paralyzing the patient obviously makes a huge deal. If you're mm -hmm. in the operating room and your patient is moving, even if it's just where they're not really seeing it, but they're so light, they're moving a little and they're just not fully paralyzed, um, then that can be a real problem too. Yeah. So there's a lot of things you want to ask when you're in the operating room. Is the patient light, paralytic, still good, whatever the case may be, to make a difference. If you can control consumption, you can improve indirectly delivery, right? Then how do you measure cardiac output? Well, in the operating room, it's easy. We got a flow probe, so we know what we're flowing, yeah. okay? And you always want your flow probe the most distal point from any shunt in your bypass circuit. Because if you have it proximally and you have that shunt open, you think you're flowing much higher than you actually are. Yeah. And so that's very important to remember. You always want your flow probe, the, 
the most distal point. Now, if you're using a roller pump, usually you're just going to be yeah. counting revolutions and stroke volume, assuming that it's occlusive and no issues there. You don't have that same luxury because you do have a lot of shunts that are gonna be open for hemoconcentrator, possibly for uh, just a recirculation, your, your manifold for drawing your labs. There's gonna be various different shunts open. And on a roller pump, you just have to know what those are. But uh, with a centrifugal pump, which I think is really more commonly used now, it's, uh, there are people who still use roller pumps, yeah. but you know, I, I, I haven't used one in a very long time. Not since I was, I think I was, no, I wasn't even Belize. Even in Belize, they use centrifugal pumps, thank goodness. Um, I would much rather use a uh, centrifugal pump than a roller pump. But you can do thoracic electrical impedance. I don't think that's worth a darn, but people use it. Minimally invasive, uh, you have lithium dilution cardiac output. That's like the LIDCO. You have pulse contour analysis, like the flow track system. And these are very good in the ICU because they're going to measure, you can, you can actually calibrate the LIDCO uh, with lithium dilution, but you can't calibrate the flow track system. Um, there's so much debate about these systems, whether or not um, they're really that accurate or not. I know some of the uh, docs that we work with at some of the hospitals call the uh, flow track, because that's the one that's popular here, the random number generator. Um, but, you know, it, it, I don't know that that's 100%. Fair. I think they're fairly accurate devices. Um, and you're not only looking at pulse contour analysis for the cardiac output, you're actually looking at your pulse pressure and systolic pressure uh, variation under mechanical ventilation. And that can tell you a lot about the patient's uh, volume status. So it's important to know that because because uh, uh, making the, uh, optimizing the patient's intravascular, intracardiac volume status is very important, uh, especially in the critical care unit, obviously, to uh, 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 having the most ideal cardiac output that that person can generate. Um, so it really helps to optimize cardiac output, cardiac index. But it can be used in the operating room as well because when you come off bypass and you're closing, you want to know what that patient's volume status is because that's when yeah. a lot of shifts are going to occur. You then have invasive, which is obviously esophageal Doppler monitoring, which is a gold standard. You have transpulmonary cardiac output, pulmonary artery catheters, and uh, you have SCVO2. That's the superior vena cable uh, oxygen measure, uh, 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 content measurement, and that sits in the jugular bulb. And that's a much better indicator of cardiac output than a mixed venous. So, because it's more specific in the, uh, in the uh, superior vena cava, and it's giving you a better indication of what the brain is actually seeing at that time. A little more accurate as far as, uh, because your lower body might not be using much oxygen. So, you know, you're going to end up with a mixed venous saturation. It doesn't look all that bad, but your SCVO2 might be really low. And that's clearly a problem. So you want to know that. Um, why measure oxygen delivery? Well, shock states and shock physiology has demonstrated to us that it's a very worthwhile thing to do. There's also a cycle of dyxioxia, or dysoxia, excuse me, which I will show you. Early observations of shock and critical illness and improved survival. 
So what is it that we care about in shock? And that's obviously blood pressure and oxygen delivery. And as I told you from the very beginning, when you go on bypass, you're basically in a controlled shock state. It is a controlled state of shock. You're going, you're draining the heart out. You're, you're, you're not draining the venous capacitance system, but you're emptying the heart. You're transitioning from continuous flow to pulsatile uh, flow to continuous flow. You're hemodiluting the patient. The pressure tends to drop down, you know, is it going to a mean pressure? And we usually have to, there's all kinds of things that are happening. The baroreceptors go crazy. The chemoreceptors go crazy. Um, all of these things are, you know, the viscosity is changing. All these things happen. You tend to see hypotension. We treat it with phenylephrine. We get the pressure back to normal again. And we accept this for relatively brief periods of time. But, you know, I mean, there, there, there are still periods of time where the body is experiencing a, uh, a, a very unnatural uh, environment. And I think it's something that we, uh, we don't do really good with. You know, back in the old days, I'll tell you a quick story if I can. We used to do this and, you know, we would mix. And so they would cannulate the right atrium. They would cannulate the aorta. And then what we would do, of course, with the time we were using bubble oxygenators, but we would drain a little bit of venous blood and then give a little bit of crystalloid arterially and do that slowly over time until the entire system was completely full. So we very slowly added aliquots of crystalloid into the patient so it wasn't a go-on bypass and you have this 30 seconds of nothing but crystalloid going into the patient. Now, because that's what happens, right? You've seen that happen many yeah. times, right? We do it with ECMO. Yeah. Okay. And in fact, I, you know, remember that? Oh, you, I don't think you were there. I think it was Lydia that was there. But we changed the ECMO circuit out. And what I did, the patient was very unstable. And I was certain the patient was not going to tolerate. He was going to code uh, if we changed the ECMO out. So I used a unit of PAC cells in the ECMO and uh, I uh, pH adjusted it with bicarb and recirculated it in the ECMO before we made the change and the guy didn't have any issues at all. Um, but if we had done it with just crystalloid during that, and I've done it before, where as soon as you go back on ECMO before the blood gets through the system, the patient codes and yeah. you're having to resuscitate them and then they come back. But uh, if you can avoid that, you should. And that was the way I chose to do it on that particular day. And it worked fine. Um, so there's a lack of adequate perfusion. You're in shock, leading to cycle of cell dysfunction, which leads to decreased ability of cell cellular oxygen consumption and use leads to cell death. And eventually you have death of the organism. And this is basically the cycle of dysoxia that I talked about. You have decreased cardiac output, which leads to a decreased DO2, which leads to cell dysfunction, which leads to decreased oxygen consumption which or utilization, which goes back around again, which further depresses the index, and this whole thing goes around in circles. So this is the cycle of dysoxia. And this came right out of uh, Dr. Kreitz's uh, 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 chapter in textbook um, of critical care. And if you, and he's uh, from Kentucky. And if you look here, you have DO2, which is arterial oxygen content and cardiac output, remember? And to increase content, you go over here, you can increase the hemoglobin, increase the saturation, increase the PO2. 
And over here for cardiac output, you can either increase the heart rate or the stroke volume. So this is just a little chart that shows you what your options are. These are the things, look, we're having a DO2 problem. I need to do one of two things. I got to increase the cardiac output. How am I going to do that? We can increase the heart rate. We can increase the stroke volume. And if that's not enough, we need to increase the arterial oxygen content or vice versa. You may pick one versus the other first. So it depends on the clinical situation, obviously. But if I increase the availability, the, the oxygen carrying capacity, then I'm, it makes sense given the same cardiac output, I'm going to increase tissue oxygenation or delivery of oxygen to the tissues. Everybody understands Starling's curve. You increase filling and you have... A curve you increase stroke volume and then eventually it levels off and over time it will come down if you overfill what inotropes do is increase that stroke volume from where it would be to where you have it so this is going to increase by increasing preload with inotropy you can improve your stroke volume thereby your cardiac output and do2 um, this is a case, I'm going to skip this. I'm not going to go through this. Um, this was the, uh, solution to that. We talked about that. Um, so correlating this to perfusion, do we flow enough during CPB? The question really should be, do we optimize? So what's your thoughts on that? Do we optimize our flow during our standard cardiopulmonary bypass procedures? Well, doesn't that just depends on cardiac index? Yeah, so the answer, is simple answer to the question is no. How yeah. do we, how, how we manage our ECMO patients? Many VV patients are, in fact, in septic shock. They, many of them are, go, and we see it a lot. Temperature management, so important. Should, how far should we be cooling them? Should we be cooling them? Certainly, we don't want them to be febrile. You have to hook a heater cooler up to them. But a lot of times they get cold and you got to warm them up because there's, you know, then we could have problems with hypothermia. But how far can you cool them when you need to? And should we? Because that increases infection risk. There's a lot of things going on there that uh, I don't have all the answers to. I've got a lot of questions. I don't have very many answers, to be honest with you. Temperature management, important. Types of monitoring. Do we measure DO2 routinely? Do we measure VO2 routinely? No, we really don't, do These we? These are not standard of care, they but it should be. They don't, yeah, but, but, yeah, but we don't. I we mean, don't. you know, we've, we've, we we our calculated flow is X. Based yeah. on what? Is it based on DO2? No. No. No? It's well, so why isn't it? Shouldn't we know what our, what, our, what our bottom line DO2 should be for this patient? Um, and then do we optimize that? So you're doing a case... You're flowing along at an index of two. Everything, your labs have been great. You're, 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 you're riding high. You're going to be out by noon with no balloon. It's all great. And then some, you're warming and something goes a little haywire. And they're like, you got to get your, turn your flow down. Turn your flow down. I need the flow down. So now you're warming and you're warmer. You're at an index of two. Your hemoglobin's eight. The patient, okay, they're obese, older, not much in the way of exercise, probably going to tolerate this for a little while. Mm -hmm. How long? We don't know. Do we measure lactates routinely? No, no, probably not. 
probably should, yes. I think. I think it should be. In fact, if you use the Siemens Rapid Point, which I have been pushing and promoting for I don't know how long now, because it's the best device out there for intraoperative blood gas analysis, much better than the iStat or even the Epoch. I don't like the Epoch. The same company makes it. The Epoch, Epoch is made by Siemens. I, I, I don't like the device. I like the, 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 the more benchtop model, mm -hmm. but it's small, and you can move it around you know, with a cart and whatever. It's just not a handheld, uh, but it gives you lactates. Yeah. Every lab, it gives you a lactate. It's so simple. And I'm probably the gem does it too. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. I know the Siemens Rapid Point does, but I like the Siemens Rapid Point because it reads potassiums up to 18. Mm -hmm. Now, why the hell would you want to measure a potassium up to 18? Well, when we do the systemic mm -hmm. hyperkalemia, minimally invasive mitral valve technique, well, you get potassiums of 13 pretty routinely. And if you're using an iStat or some of the other devices, they only go to nine. Yeah. But I need it higher than that because I want to see how fast it's coming down when I start removing it with the CVVH. But do we really optimize? You know, we hear, have people talking all the time about goal-directed perfusion, goal-directed perfusion. I'm actually going to have a talk done in June, and um, the person, a, a, a very, very credible person who can give this talk very well, is going to be talking about goal-directed perfusion. But what are the goals? What are the goals? How do we, you know, I mean, we talk about it, you know, reduced circuit size and uh, less hemodilution. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah. I think we should all try to have as small a circuit as we can. Should we wrap? Should we ultrafiltrate? You know, I'm very much against wrap. Yeah. A lot of people are very for wrap. You know, we, I mean, we agree to disagree on that. Um, but there's so many other aspects to what we do that goal-directed perfusion is sort of an ambiguous term that's being used and thrown around to be like, ooh, we do goal-directed perfusion. But what are the goals? What are we doing? What are we trying to do and why? And does it matter at the end of the day? I think it should. Yeah. Probably does matter, but I don't have an answer for that either. Um, this is on the kidney. Uh, so I think what I'm going to do in deference to time is I'm just going to go ahead and stop there and uh, ask uh, Ramsha to ask me any questions you'd like and uh, from my talk and you criticize it if you like, um, but I'd take some crit critical, cr some 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 constructive criticism, um, or any questions you may have, or anybody in the audience may have. No, I think you did a really good job um, explaining DO2 and VO2 because I will be a kind of elaborating, not really, mm -hmm. but I think you did really good. Thank so. you. Okay, good. So you give me I learned. You learned something. Yes. What'd you learn? If you learn something, tell me what you learned. See, <laughs> don't ever say something to me and not expect a question back. I learned about that um, graph that you were showing me. I was not able to understand it, but now I do. Because you I mean the, the, the DO2 versus uh -huh. VO2. The oxygen-dependent versus yeah. oxygen-independent. Yep. So luxurious perfusion versus mm -hmm. just barely enough or yes. not enough. Well, good, good. I'm glad that that was useful. Okay.